Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 228. Today is Sunday the 26th of March 2017 and this interview is with Dan Priestley. Dan is the director and co-founder of Dent Global, delivering next-level business strategy and technology to entrepreneurial organizations. Dan's a highly successful entrepreneur in his own right, having built and sold businesses in Australia, Singapore and the UK. He's also an international speaker and best-selling author with a new book about to come out. In this podcast, we talk about some of the keys to making a successful startup or business, how to become influential, and much more. And at the end of the podcast, he has a free offer for you listeners. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. So welcome to the Minter Dialogue. And um, so we, we obviously met back at, in the beginning with uh, KPI and when that started. And I love the, I love the journey that I was on with that. So tell us, um, for, the, for my listeners, who, who you are and what's your mindset? <laughs> uh, well, I have an entrepreneurial mindset and have done since I was about 10 years old. I, right. uh, I launched my first entrepreneurial venture when I was 10, which was a garage sale. Love it. Um, but my background in Australia was uh, I launched a company at 21, grew it to a, a multi-million dollar business by about 25 we did 10.7 million dollars worth of sales in 2005 um, before I got out came to the UK Uh, in 2010 I launched an entrepreneur growth accelerator and since then we've had 3,000 companies come through uh, around Australia Singapore UK and USA um, and they're companies that want to stand out and scale up and what we do is we find entrepreneurs and leaders who have actually uh, gone through the entrepreneurial journey and they're, you know, they're people who have built and sold companies, they're senior leaders, they're authors, they're uh, award winners, um, and we bring their expertise to the table to help those entrepreneurs uh, to navigate their entrepreneurial journey more successfully. It's beautiful. Of course, I, I understand uh, what you're doing. One of the things that really interests me is to find out how different it is being an entrepreneur in Singapore, Australia, and and England, how, or UK, how do you how do you describe? Is there a difference? There's definitely a difference. Um, so Australians they buy really quickly, but then ask, "What the hell did I buy?" <laughs> um, whereas the British uh, want a little bit more convincing before before going ahead. Um, so there's a difference in the way people um, buy. Sign up for the yeah. <laughs> for, um, uh, in Singapore, there's a lot of expats. Um, so you know you have in Singapore. Um, it's a very, very international city. You, you have uh, people from all over the world um, who have come in to make Singapore their home in Asia. Um, so it's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a different uh, mindset compared to people who are building and growing companies who were born in the in the area. Um, USA is an interesting one. You know, uh, the the USA. Uh, you know, it's an incredibly entrepreneurial mindset. Um, it's also incredibly competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, I've, I've never seen so much wealth disparity in any other country mm-hmm. uh, than the USA. You actually have people who are massively in debt or, or have millions and millions in the bank. Billions, yeah. And there, there's just this extreme, I've found there's quite an extreme polarity between mm-hmm. the, the people that you meet in, uh, in the USA. So some of, some of the people I've met in the USA are people who are literally heirs to multi-billion dollar fortunes and have huge amounts of um, 
wealth and influence and then I've met other people who are really, really just holding on by their fingernails. Um, and it seems that there's just uh, the, the two extremes. Well, so you're in a space uh, that has to be classified as growing. If you, know, if you look at all, all the young people every, everywhere they are today, they're looking to start up entrepreneurships or you know, entrepreneurial adventures as opposed to joining big companies. I mean, let's say that I assume that that's reflected in, what, in your business and how it's, how it's working. What are the things that entrepreneurs today need to drive their business? I mean, let's say that I have an idea, but then, then what? Yeah, so there's, I've found that there's an entrepreneurial journey, and it's very predictable. So there's a few stages that you have to go through. The first one is concept, that you have to be positioned within the right concept. Um, and, um, and that's really just looking at industry, market, um, and the viability of, of the actual concept. Can you sustain interest in it? Are you going to be passionate about it? Are there people who have money, uh, who have a problem um, that they want solving, uh, unmet need? So that's concept. And then uh, after concept comes value. You have to define what it is that you're going to tackle, what problem are you going to go out and solve. Um, and you essentially can prove value as soon as you can uh, get some revenue. So as soon as people start paying for things, then you've proven that you've got something of value. The next comes influence, and influence is all about um, being almost a go-to brand, um, having people who would prefer to go out of their way to work with you, perhaps pay a slight premium to work with you. Um, they've, they know you, they like you, they trust you, they've heard about you. Um, so that's ar- around the concept of influence. And then the final one is about assets, and that's about digital assets that scale. Um, so you've, you've got a great concept, you've proven value, you've become influential at that, now you've formalised those assets that allow you to be on YouTube, on Amazon, on Google. Um, it allows people all over the world to discover you, to learn from you, to access the value that you have to offer. So what we do with our clients is we take them through a very predictable journey where we get each one of those things right, and we do it in that order. A classic error that entrepreneurs are making is, is um, they want to go straight to assets. They want the big exit, right. and they, they want to look like the big company mm-hmm. that they've seen, but their concept's not right. Their influence isn't there. Right. They haven't, they haven't got They're not the, really passionate about it. Yeah, right? so that would be concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, influence. It's very difficult to become influence, influential if there isn't some sort of a, a raw passion there. So um, what we need to do is go through those uh, steps in order. In the same way, if you saw someone flying down the highway and they're doing 100 miles an hour in fourth gear, it doesn't mean that you start in fourth gear. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean right. that you, you know, because you'd stall. So what we want to do is we want to move people through the gears. Um, in, in, in the way you, you do KPI or key press of influence, how important is the concept of purpose? Purpose being not just what am I here for, but to what extent what I'm doing is improving the world's, the world. Yeah, uh, so it's it's important on very many levels. Um, so the purpose of Dent Global is uh, to empower entrepreneurial teams to solve the world's most meaningful problems. So what we're out there doing is finding entrepreneurs who actually want to use their business as a force for good, and we're taking them in a direction where they can select a United Nations global goal, uh, and then they can find micro-giving impacts that they can factor into every single transaction, and they can help use their business to, to solve a big problem. Uh, problem. So, you know, it's very much linked to what we do, um, but there are many levels why that's important. Number one, if you want to create an entrepreneurial organization that takes on a life of its own, um, that organization 
in its own right needs a purpose. It needs a reason to exist. Um, and without that reason to exist, you just won't attract the right people. You won't attract the right clients. You won't have that spark that's living within yeah, right. uh, the organization. Jump out of bed. Exactly. Um, the other thing, too, is a big more macro, um, which is that the Industrial Revolution solved a lot of problems around consumption. So pre-industrial revolution there just wasn't enough stuff to consume there wasn't enough food there wasn't enough clothing you know we all hear the story about well when you know when my from grandparents you know i only ever had one pair of shoes i only had one shirt on yeah on on sunday i had to walk walk around naked while we washed the clothing right and it was all hand-me-down so there was these problems with consumption we now live in a world of too much consumption. Fast fashion is killing the planet and plat- you know, plastic containers are everywhere yeah. for single usage. So we actually have a problem that is not uh, called uh, there's not enough stuff to consume in the West especially. We have a problem called we're consuming too much mm-hmm. and we're feeling too little meaning. We're not feeling connected to the world. So actually I think the next wave of entrepreneurs are succeeding because they're solving uh, problems of contribution. They're helping us to become better contributors. They're helping us to do more meaningful work. Um, And I think a lot of the greatest companies that are going to spring up in the next 10 years are companies that are driven um, based not on helping people to consume but helping them to contribute. Mm. Um, In many ways, the reasons people buy a Tesla is not because they necessarily want to consume the value but they want to get they want to rally behind a company they want movement. to participate in a movement they want to do something that's meaningful um, and they want to be part of solving a big meaningful mm. problem and mm. buying a tesla is probably the funnest and coolest way that you could participate in any movement i don't know any movement that comes with a car but um yeah, well, it's a it's a moving story a so <laughs> rr um you talked earlier about value and and finding value one of the challenges i, I see a lot of entrepreneurs having is value and it's, it's it's in the context that internet seems to be more about free than it is about high cost I mean, that's luxury goods companies who are having troubles figuring out how to use internet because it's sort of so democratic and so low priced yeah. how does one establish a high price or a higher price and, and getting the strongest uh, profit out of the things you're selling it's through uh, it's through blending so what we need to do is create blended solutions that involve online and offline, uh, owned and supplied um, ingredients. Uh, we need to in, uh, incorporate um, information and implementation. Um, and it's through the blending of, um, of all of those elements that we create value. Uh, so if you think about uh, something like a Porsche 911, uh, it's 3,500 suppliers who all come together to assemble the thing. But it's not just the the tangible thing that you're buying. There's a community. There's uh, training in how to do offensive driving, uh, track driving. Um, there's um, uh, there's the intangible benefits of the brand. Um, Belonging to a something aspirational. Aspirational. Um, if you look at how they uh, deliver that online with lots of movies and ambassadors and you know uh, online forums. So the more that you actually blend these elements of digital and physical, um, intangible and tangible and online and offline, and and when I say owned versus supplied, uh, the Porsche 911 is an um, owned design, um, but it's a supplied radio uh, uh, music system. Um, It's a supplied set of tyres. It's a supplied set of brakes. So there's a whole set of suppliers who make that thing happen. Um, We're actually quite 
uh, excited by the idea that it's a Bose stereo system inside the Porsche 911. Mm. So they're actually blending different elements. It's very collaborative in that respect. Exactly. So where people make a big mistake is they say, oh, I'm just going to create this thing that exists online and people need to buy it. And it's like, well, actually, if it's online, it's probably got to be free, mm-hmm. given the fact that you can get this, you know, the plans for the Stealth Bomber online for free if you want them. You can listen to Richard Branson and Bill Gates talking hours for free. There's content. Uh, so um, so if it's purely online, it's purely for free. If it's offline, then people aren't discovering it or trusting it. So we have to go for blended solutions. Another thing you mentioned, Daniel, was uh, your charities. And I know you have a number of charities that you at Dent um, invest in or at least participate in. When one is looking for meaningfulness in a company, it, it, there's a sort of an... The easy route is, well, I'll give X percent of my profits to a, a charity, and that's because I have a personal conviction. But what's the, li- the link with my brand per se? How do you navigate that between, let's say, for example, I might have a particular interest in multiple sclerosis. I would want to then do that. But what's the link with the mindset per se? It's, let's say, <laughs> distinctly yeah. abstract. So I think it's more important for a business to choose something that's aligned to the brand of the business um, uh, because every individual can also be giving to something that's individually purposeful for them. But I think that the framework that seems to work best for our clients um, and that I've seen working really, really well is to use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. There's 17 of them. There's actually 16, but the 17th is to spread the word about the goals. So I'm doing 17 right now. Um, So you choose one of the 16 development goals. Inside that development goal is a framework of what needs to be done, what are the purposeful impacts that need to be achieved. There's uh, so, you know, just sitting behind that is a whole framework. And then I've found it's really powerful to use an organization called Buy One, Give One, B1G1, which creates micro-giving impacts that relate to the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. So if your business is an education and training company, you can give books and stationery to a school in Malawi uh, every single time someone takes on an education and training program. So buy one, give one. If your business is a coffee shop, you could actually give clean water to the villages in the coffee-growing nations. Um, So there's buy one, give one, um, and it fits really well with the brand. That's going to attract people to the brand, be it high-performing team members, be it great clients who are loyal. All of those things happen, so it creates a nice ecosystem. Um, I think uh, individuals can also use that as an idea. They can find the causes that that fit with them personally. And anyone who's building a business that is very much about their personal brand and their personal story, you know, it works works the same sort of way. But I think if you're trying to create a business or a brand that has a life of its own, Mm -hmm. um, then picking what would that – if that business was a person, what would it pick? Um, Yeah, it brings up another point, Daniel, which is transmission. So you've built the business and you want to move move on. And, and have a have someone take it, take it on. So if the charity is not right for that brand, then the next person, if it's just a personal link, they won't take it on. What are some of the indications you have for helping to, to transmit or to send, you know, uh, pass along a company to an, a new founder or new, you know, somebody who's going to take it over? Yeah, so I think when it's time to exit a business, one of the most important things is that you exit the business with a business plan in place. Um, one of the really cool things is that, you know, if you try and sell a business, like, for example, if you tried to sell a block of land as here's a block of land, um, you're going to get X price for it. If you said here's a block of land with town planning approval to put on a 10-story building, 
then you're going to get a lot more for it. So um, if you're selling a business, it's really important to get an external management consultant to develop a business plan that would dovetail into the acquirer's business plan um, and to make sure you sell it with here's the next three years uh, as, a, as right. a business plan in place. Mm. Um, you know, if, for example, if, if I wanted to exit um, to a company that had, you know, 40 offices around the world, then the business plan would be here's how the, this business would launch into those 40 cities and here's how it would dovetail into the culture and here's the brand that you would change versus the brand you would keep. So you actually answer all of those questions. In the same way, if you're selling a product, you want to have a brochure as to what the future is going to be like and what it's going to, what what pride of ownership is going to look like, and all of those things. You want to really paint the picture for the person who's going to buy that product. Mm. When you're selling a company, it is a product for the acquirer, um, and it should be treated as such. So you would go in selling. Here's what pride of ownership is going to look like. Here's what the future is going to be mm. like. Not here's what we've got today. Take it or leave it. It's it's actually. Here's, here's where you're going to take this. Right. I, I bring it up because a lot of entrepreneurial outfits are driven by the personality of the CEO. That is to say that they are the brand, let's say Richard Branson. And so when a Richard Branson or a Jeff Bezos is going to hand over, yeah. how does one find that spark that's going to continue to drive the brand with the risk taking that comes with the entrepreneurial know-how because when you're the when you're running the brand mm. you're running dent mm. you know the kind of risks you want to take you can just say it live because that's what you want to do you have it in your gut mm. when you give over to a hired ceo yeah. or maybe a private equity yeah. where they're driving for profits the instinct leaves the human passion goes yeah. what about that so the entrepreneurial journey is a journey of alchemy it's it's a journey of starting with nothing and actually building assets and creating something of value so those assets have to come into existence and typically that journey normally would be from startup through to about 150 employees and when you get to about 150 people um, and when you get to 150 people uh, what happens is um, it becomes an asset-driven business as opposed to an alchemy-driven business. So the time that you should sell out to a private equity firm or to sell out to a big company is the time where the business is a set of assets. Mm -hmm. Big companies are really good at working with established assets. They that's, that's their bread and butter. Right. That's what they do. So there is a point where the big company comes along and they say, we can see this as an established set of assets. We can scale those assets, duplicate those assets, invest in those assets, um, and that's what they're buying. That's why they want the company. And the journey as to how you got there was alchemy. Right. Um, but the funny thing you mentioned about a key person of influence who's running a company, someone like a Bezos or a, especially a Branson, is that they create companies very, very rapidly that can be sold. Right. Um, now, you don't necessarily have to sell a company and then never have anything to do with it again. There's what's called the Ferrari, uh, the Enzo Ferrari exit. So Enzo Ferrari started this racing car company. He then realized he was the wrong person to scale it, so he sold 90% to Fiat. He kept 10% stake for him and his family, and his job was to swan around at racing events having a great time. Representing the brand. Representing the brand um, and doing all the fun stuff. Mm. Um, so he was the, the magic... Um, brand element yeah. uh, today his ten percent stake is worth something like seven or eight hundred million mm. uh, euros 
um, because the brand is worth you know s- uh, many seven, billions, seven yeah. or eight billion. So um, so hence the family. Uh, have earned more money than they probably would have had they right. kept a boutique racing company. Yeah, which means that he really had to understand himself yeah. uh, in order to take off the ego hat. Yeah. I mean, he ego had, he that to, he might have. He had to do what was best for the company. Mm. So, you know, as a parent, there comes a time where what's best is to let your kids make their own mistakes and to move out of home and to, and to do all not, that. Not yet for you yet, Dad. Not right. for me. Mine's only two and a half, right? right? So it's a, luckily it's a long, you know, out there. Getting out of the pram, maybe. Get, get out there, son. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're almost three now. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I know from being, a, being parented that there was a time where my parents had to let go. And as a, as a parent of a business, as the creator of a business, there's time where you say, actually, the best thing for my business is for me to pass this on to a large global, you know, global company with lots of resources who can scale these assets and achieve the mission of the business at a level that I couldn't. Um, and at that point, you're actually doing the right thing by the employees. You're doing the right thing by the customers. You're doing the right thing by the business. And maybe the right thing is not to pass on 100%. Maybe the right thing is to stay on as a chairman and a shareholder or something like that to provide the magical entrepreneurial right, element uh, and to guide the board. Um, the other thing, too, is I, I really don't think that time ever comes when the business is not yet an asset. So if it still has work to be done, then your entrepreneurial job is still to do that work. Mm. And only when the business is a scalable asset with a completely formalized asset, that's, that and only then is the time where you pass it on to a company that's very good at working with assets. All right, which brings up the next point, the obvious next point, which is how do big companies bring on board entrepreneurs? Let's say you and I are familiar with lots of companies who say, oh, we've got to become more entrepreneurial, we've got to be more agile, but, you know, we're prom, prom, prom. And then we, well, no, what we need to do is we need to buy the entrepreneur and then we'll become, you know, that we'll buy osmosis, we'll get it. How does that work? <laughs> well, um, kind of the entrepreneurial idea is that entrepreneurship is about asset creation. It's about starting with nothing, reverse engineering the future, taking on a project that you don't currently control enough resources to deliver upon. Um, so there are pockets or projects within every large company that could look like that. Um, you could also do an acquisition if you want the entrepreneurial talent, maybe not buy the whole company, maybe buy 90% of the company and see if you can retain the entrepreneur as uh, a mystical element who wanders around sprinkling entrepreneurial fairy dust inside the company. Which which leaves them with the opportunity still to capitalize on their growth and their profits. Exactly, and, and it means that they're, you know, they're still attached to the idea that it's going to be a great success and all of that sort of stuff. Or the third option is to recognize that that's not the skill or the talent, to actually say we're a big fat beast of a company, we have all these assets we're very good at working with assets when you have an asset bring it to us we'll buy it scale it um, and have a great time with it doing what we do and we'll be very grateful for what you do and we'll pay you lots of money for that a lot of, lot of i would say that's the obvious path for many um so key personal influence was your first book you've done a number of or at least two uh, best-selling books uh, your last one was called Oversubscribed, and then I want to talk to you about your next book, which is coming up. So Oversubscribed, tell us what is that? What was the concept behind Oversubscribed, which came out in 2015, I think? Yeah, so it was demand and supply tension. So 
when you have a digital environment, there's no demand and supply tension, so price falls to zero, um, and it's a very difficult problem uh, to face. However, there are some brands that haven't that hasn't happened to. In fact, what's happened is the the value of what they do has gone through the roof. So Louis Vuitton, for example, is a great example of a brand that has magically uh, smashed it through the roof ever since the digital environment came along. Um, Ferrari is another one of those brands. Uh, there are certain members clubs. There are certain restaurants. So there are certain companies that are that are really using the new landscape, the digital landscape, to their advantage to become oversubscribed. Oversubscribed simply means that demand outstrips supply, that you can maintain very high prices and you've still got to queue up out the door um, and you can't keep up with the marketplace. So I wanted to have a look at how do companies do that, what are the key attributes of an oversubscribed business, um, and, uh, and what can we learn. Right, so if I take an example that I know rather well, Aston Martin, they have something like 8 million fans on their Facebook page, mm-hmm. but only a very small percentage of which are actually potential buyers for the brand. So let's say that they have well subscribed their Facebook page. The challenge is converting those into buyers. So what, what, what population within their subscription, the subscribers, are prepared and willing to buy? So what... what What's the, the answer for that? So how does one manage the difference between you know, a fan on Facebook and a real buyer? Well, um, part of the prestige of the brand of um, Aston Martin is that there's a lot of fans. Um, you, you are actually almost buying a car that has a ready-made audience of admirers. Right. Um, so, drive by the street. Yeah, yeah, so part of the product is that there's actually a lot of fans who want one but can't afford one. Right. Um, so that's, that is part of the product. And... and um, there will always be a natural movement of companies that go from uh, the journey of a fan who becomes a buyer. And at a certain point, you have to trust that if you create enough fans, you'll, the buyers will take care of themselves. Um, or the salespeople will be able to uh, talk to people about um, becoming a, a buyer. One of, the, one of the things that a lot of companies are missing out on is the sales conversation. So... It's really important to acknowledge that some of the biggest brands in the planet spend a lot of time and a lot of resource on sales conversations. So they have great brands, like, for example, Rolex or Apple, uh, amazing brand. Um, They have lots of fans, but the fans actually often don't turn themselves into buyers. Uh, What does turn them into buyers is sales conversations. So, for example, Rolex has a uh, Rolex sales boot camp up in Milton Keynes, and in order for you to be able to sell a Rolex, you have to have three days' worth of training about how to be a Rolex salesperson. And to, you have to go through and understand the history, understand the features, advantages, and the benefits, mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things in order to have a, a, a sales conversation. Um, if you, uh, um, if you uh, look at Apple, they have very detailed um, program as to how to sell Apple products. Right. So presumably this is getting into the notion of how does the brand how the how the brand is sold differently. In other words, if I'm Apple or I'm Rolex, not only do I get to know about the brand and the products, but there's maybe a a specific branded way that I need to be selling, maybe a routine or a ritual that comes in. Is that how, how that goes? Yeah, so uh, every every sales conversation has to marry up what people already know about the brand, uh, what they already know about the problem that they're solving, and overcoming any objections that 
um, or missing pieces of information that they're that they're not yet familiar with. So um, we assume because we're very close with our own businesses and brands, we assume that people are just uh, going to um, connect the dots themselves. And we forget that we live in a very noisy world. We've, we live in a world where there's so much distraction. And many consumers, many buyers haven't pieced all of the dots together. Mm-hmm. So a great sales conversation is about identifying where are the gaps in people's knowledge um, and then helping them to connect the dots to overcome anything that is a point of resistance. One of the things that I've been interested in is, is how, do, how does com- commerce change by brand? That's to say, as you know, you were you and I were talking right before. What is a brand? And, and there's the the notion of the logo, the signage. There's a second, the 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 concept. I, I can't remember. And then the third one was the ambassadors. Anyway, the notion of the ambassadors is what we're talking about here, which is these are individuals who are representing the brand, selling the brand. And so there's sales techniques and you know negotiating and object and objection uh, fighting. But then how does that? How do you find ways for brands? to be doing that differently. Do you have any ideas on that? Uh, Through ambassadors? I think it's really important to acknowledge that ambassadors uh, work with the software that's already between people's ears, which is for hundreds of thousands of years we get to know faces and we get to know our tribal leaders and we get to know the people we can respect and admire and aspire to be like. And when when our brains identify that a brand has that person, we form a lot closer bond. a, a, an amazing example is Nespresso with what they did with George Clooney. So uh, Nespresso, most people don't realise, was started in 1976 by Nestle and it was a big clunky coffee machine. Um, and for 30 years the brand did very little. It got into a few offices, when I say a few, in the context of ne- where it is today and also in the context of Nestle. But uh, it got into some, some offices, it wasn't a, a known brand, no one had any loyalty to that brand. Um, and then along comes 2006, new CEO says we're going to sign George Clooney as the ambassador and create a consumer brand. Um, and George Clooney was the perfect choice. He was mass market, but he also had that kind of exclusivity. Um, he was uh, sexy, or you know, hopefully still is, right? He's, uh, he represents you know, uh, someone who's um, aspirational. But also at the time he was very well known for living in Lake Como, so there was this European-Italian flavour, but American mass market. Mm. So if you think about how do we get the European-Italian flavour to the American mass market consumer, George Clooney was the perfect bridge who embodied the brand that they were trying to sell. Mm. Um, as a result, from 2006 to 2016, um, Nestle became sorry, Nespresso became one of the biggest coffee brands in the world, most successful coffee brands in the world. Um, you know, so so it was a hugely successful brand ambassadorship. You don't have to be a massive company to do it. Um, I know a little company, uh, or relatively little company, that sponsors a rowing team and a university rowing team. It's a few thousand pounds per year, but the rowing team represents great timing, trust, teamwork. Mm, sure. So all of the things they're trying to get across in the brand, mm. even the fact that it's a university rowing team, almost shows that it's an up-and-comer. Up and mm-hmm. um, nice fit. Yeah, so there's so many nice fits there, and they use that rowing team in all their marketing material and collateral, and they tell the stories, and they uh, share with their employees those stories, and it actually it's a really nice... Um, small ambassadorship. Right. All right, so we're going to finish on uh, your upcoming book. Dan, tell us uh, what's the scoop. 
So the new book is called 24 Assets, and it's about creating an ecosystem of digital assets. Um, I looked at the companies that were scaling effortlessly and um, robustly and profitably, and what I discovered is that there was an ecosystem of 24 things that they would get right. The human brain really only has about five or seven things, five to seven things that it can hold as a focus. So a lot of companies get between five and seven things right. They mm. get those really, really right. Um, and without a framework of thinking about a bigger picture of how could the whole business be an ecosystem of 24 things. Mm. Um, it I feels- usually can't do more than three. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Uh, And it becomes stressful. So I wanted to create a framework that would allow people to identify the whole ecosystem of the 24 things that scale um, and then to benchmark which ones they're already strong at and not to do the classic mistake of just over-investing in and you know, continually rebuilding the stuff that's that's already there. So, you know, the the taxi cab company, Halo... um, In London. In London. uh, They just rebranded their their logo and their identity getting rid of five years worth of brand identity Uh, why because they went oh it must be a brand problem it wasn't a brand problem they might have been sick of the brand they might have been um thinking that the brand is you know not quite right the brand was actually looking great people were just starting to notice it but that wasn't the issue that they were trying to solve so essentially halo started by being a really clever app uh, and a really clever distribution system with a very nice brand. So essentially they're doing the thing of playing to their strong suits, which is we know how to do apps, we know how to do distribution, we know how to do brands, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that they're not doing right that would build out that business more effectively. So the book 24 Assets is about how to build a business that scales, that becomes profitable, that's more fun, that's more robust, and essentially that can one day be exitable. Where can one... Uh Sign up for it. The book is out in April, May. Uh, it'll be in all good bookstores, a few bad bookstores, and it'll be on Amazon. <laughs> um, at the very beginning, I, I uh, said that there would be, a, you're uh, prepared to give a little giveaway to the listeners. What would that be, Daniel? Yeah, so anyone who emails our office, info at dent.global, um, we will do, uh, we'll send out uh, 10 copies of the first book key person of influence will well, to the first 10 to the first 10 that write in that's yeah. what I like you don't want to send 10 to each person oh yeah well, so, well we'll send you know hundreds to each person boxes of books to, um so uh, for the first 10 uh send send those books out um so just drop your mailing address to info at dent.global um and if they do it in time we can also invite them along to uh, some of the events that we've got coming and those sorts of things brilliant oh dan i did want to have one more last curiosity do you have any mentors or people you look up to Oh, I have so many people. I've surrounded myself with just mentors, um, you know, for my whole career. And the whole business that I have is based around having great mentors. So I'm so super, super lucky that on any given day I might be catching up with, um, you know, someone who's built a really, you know, award, massive award-winning project, someone who's written a great book, um, someone who's built and sold a company for tens of millions, um, you know, those those that you know, I'm incredibly fortunate that that is my actual typical day. That's where um, you get your energy from. So I get I get this constant input. Um, if anything, I have mental fatigue. It's you know, it's <laughs> that's like, a new one. Usually we talk about mental fatigue. So Dan, uh, how can anyone follow you, track you down? What's the best way to to get in touch with you? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, any of those. Um, totally cool. You want to drop me an email, uh, Daniel at Dent Global, Info at Dent Global, um, any of those. Put those in the show notes. Thanks for coming on the show, Dad. Thank you so much for having me.
thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. 
Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.